Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. This podcast was originally set up because we were exasperated at the polarisation of British politics, especially in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum. But Brexit is not the only divide in British politics. Culture and age are also some of the big divided lines. To that end, we are delighted to welcome Professor Bobby Duffy, who has written extensively on polarisation. Bobby, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself and feel free to tell us about your new book. <laughs> great, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Martin. Um, and great to be here. Yeah, so I'm Bobby Duffy. I'm Director of Policy of the Policy Institute at King's College London. And I guess my main focus over the past few years has been on polarisation trends, whether we really are polarised or not. And then that segued into looking at culture wars and the extent to which we really do or don't have a culture war in the UK as we'd understand it from the US experience. And then the latest uh, piece of work is uh, just publishing um, in a couple of days time actually uh, a book on generations. Um, again trying to separate the myths uh, from the realities of generational differences. It's a very powerful way to think about culture change and polarisation, but but horribly corrupted by terrible uh, cliches and stereotypes. Um, so the, it's called Generations Does When You're Born Shape Who You Are? And it basically tries to answer that type of question. A perfect guest. So thank you very much for joining us. So given that your work has covered polarisation, I wondered if you would mind telling us what you found. And let's start with are we polarised as a country? And if so, how? Yeah, so it's a crucial question. And uh, like lots of these things, it, it's useful to start with what do we mean um, by polarisation? And, and in particular, there's some, there's some great academic literature and thinking about the nature of polarisation um, that's very rarely applied when you just have casual discussions and media discussions about it. And uh, we just talk about being divided or polarised. And, and really... Um, that is it's too high level and too simplistic to, to think about this. And it is there's one key distinction. It's not that it makes it hugely complicated. It's just one key distinction I think is really important in discussing polarisation, and that's between issue polarisation and affective polarisation, affective with an A, so sort of an emotional identity-driven polarisation. And, and what, what we showed... In uh, so new research and looking at all the existing research is that um, we are not that polarised on the issues in the UK. Um, we're not that big a gap between people, even on quite contentious issues. We're sort of we are fairly middling as uh, a country on lots and lots of things. The extreme views get a lot of it attention, um, but actually the majority of the public are not on those extreme wings. So, so issue polarisation, we're not polarised um, in that sense. Uh, but on affected polarisation, which is this a more emotional, do you belong to one tribe or the other tribe, uh, there is really strong signs of, of polarisation around Brexit identities in particular um, when we were doing this uh, research. So you do get a sense that you're, in, you're on one side or the other on some of these uh, political debates, even if you're not that far apart on lots of the issues and that effect of polarization has got uh, three or four main elements to it first of all you identify with your side strongly um, that leads you to denigrate or dislike um, the other side and then thirdly you get uh, perceptual biases where you start to see things differently um, on one side or the other facts about particular things because uh, you dismiss things that don't fit with your worldview and you uh, amplify things that do fit with your worldview. So uh, we do have that that type of polarisation, not so much around the issues, more about our identities. Um, so the conclusion of a lot of that research was on, on the issues. 
we're much more fragmented than we are polarized into different sorts of groups. So what we don't have in the UK that you have much closer to in the US is two big monolithic blocks of um, Democrats and Republicans who are facing off against each other and drifting apart over time and facing off against each other over the issues and identity aspects of polarization. We're not there yet, much more fragmented, much more identity driven, much less about big issues. And so what factors explain these divisions? And would you say it's more partisanship rather than polarisation? Yeah, it's a good good point. I mean, it's sort of um, in the the UK, we talk about um, a drop in partisanship when we're talking about political parties, party de-alignment, as it's called, where actually over the long period, we've become less attached. We had become less attached to our political party identity. whether it's Labour, Conservative, or other parties, over a long period, you'd seen that decline. Um, so it's uh, it, it, partisanship um, in political partisanship hasn't hasn't has been a declining feature. But I think what we what we what we've had is uh, a type of um, cultural division uh, grow up over a number of years preceding Brexit, where you've got people that are comfortable with change and diversity, immigration, and yeah, how society is going. And you've got people who are less comfortable with that and have a more traditional um, view of how society should be. And it's not that Brexit created that uh, sense. It's something that was clear and was coming up in uh, public opinion long before Brexit. But what Brexit did was give it a shape and a solidity and identity that people could um, side with one side or the other, which, which side are you on? And it's not something that we particularly had before in our political party identities. So it gave this new dimension, if you think about it, as a couple of axes. It, it, um, you've got an economic left-right axis and a vertical axis, more about social and cultural uh, views. Um, it gave some shape and identity to that. Um, so it, it's clear that Brexit... Uh, revealed and reinforced this trend towards this uh, these divisions in cultural views that you're on one side or the other of of that type of comfort or discomfort with cultural uh, and societal change. So that, that that Brexit is a key element of this, but it isn't um, the it's not necessarily the root cause. More revealing and reinforcing. When do you think the um, is signs sort of really began to appear given that you said that they they were present before brexit i mean it is it is hard to look past immigration concern as a, as a key one it's not again not the sole one within this and you can see how uh, if you go back to um the 90s and you look at those sorts of questions that ask what are the most important issues facing the country um, that Ipsos Mori has a, a long-term trend for. No one was raising immigration as a particular concern. It didn't matter which side of the political divide you were on or whether you were a, a Daily Mail Express or Guardian reader. There was no one particularly raising that. But as it came to the uh, late 1990s and 2000s, it's just shot up hugely um, in terms of people's concerns. It just hadn't featured at all. And then it became regularly one of the top issues um, facing the country. And then also started to divide people um, politically, but also crucially from my perspective, having written about generations, generationally. um, So you start to see these divides emerge between uh, younger groups who are much more comfortable with uh, immigration and integration uh, and older groups who were much more worried about it. So it's, um, it is true that um, that immigration concern was a core aspect of this uh, itself, was, um, is, is, is both a, a flagship issue within that, but also a symptom of a, a deeper sense of society changing too much and a sense of uh, whether you looked nostalgically at the past or whether you looked optimistically towards um, the future. So around that sort of time, you can start to see these things um, start to emerge. And and that was when we were having a lot of discussion and say David Goodhart wrote his essay on whether Britain was um, becoming too diverse. 
Um, and that was where the, the interest started to come. And it came first from noticing those sorts of trends in the public opinion uh, data. And what role do you think that social media has? Uh, when, when you start to look at the literature on where do culture wars come from and uh, where does it, where does this sense of deep polarisation come from, where you've got one group, you have one worldview, um, and uh, it's not just a disagreement between uh, two groups on particular issues. It's like completely different worldviews that lead to implacable conflict, which is the kind of end point of this, this type of um, polarisation. The American literature talks uh, a lot about the interplay between um, bottom-up cultural change where um, people are you know, genuinely concerned about how society is changing and, uh, and others are comfortable with it and that, that leading to a, a schism between different sorts of groups and the extent to which it is created as a top-down um, phenomenon where both political strategy and media coverage and social media coverage increasingly um, in, encourage that type of division. And again, I think the, the conclusion from that is it is a bit of both. And there's an interplay between those two things where what you say top down is really important within that mix, if, if not utterly causal of these types of division. So it is clear in the US that you know there were... Uh, media and political decisions to emphasize uh, division um, or to uh, cooperate less across, um, uh, particularly across political uh, lines. And that you can see that trickling down and you can see the, uh, the effects starting at the top and coming down. So there is certainly a role within all of this for our information environment, which in- includes media and social media, and in, in particular, because the structure and incentives of that environment have changed so much, um, where there's so much competition, and there's so much knowledge and live testing just in real life of what travels furthest and farthest and farthest uh, furthest and quickest. Um, it's clear that extreme views get more attention. Um, the more emotional more extreme views get a reaction in in a way that uh, it wouldn't have been at the same sort of scale in, in other envir- information environments. So it definitely is intertwined, our sense of division, and then uh, creating uh, identity divisions is definitely intertwined with the information um, environment and how that has, has shifted. So uh, they it has a key role and you know there's great research that shows um you know in natural experiment work that shows the impact of different sorts of media coverage on people's um, perceptions and political behavior so uh, it, it, it plays a really important role do you have a uh, a sense of whether the bottom up or top down factors are stronger i don't know if that's something you can test but um, I, I sort of know, particularly from the American debate, that you kind of have two stories told. One is about social media echo chambers and so on. The other one is about if you you know, leave New York and you drive upstate, it, you'll feel like in a different country. And in fact, New York has much more in common with London or Paris than it does you know, two hours up the road. Do, do you have a sense of which of those is a stronger impact? Yeah, again, it's a really good point. I mean, I'm, uh, we got a bit told off by Pippa Norris, who's... Uh, uh, a very eminent U.S. academic, uh, British U.S. academic, who has looked a lot at cultural change over the years and U.S. politics in particular, from for emphasising the top downness, um, and it partly relates to, uh, and you know, making the point, you know, there are genuine changes, and it partly relates to the generational point that I was making because Pippa Norris and people like Ron Inglehart um, were some of the key people in tracking generational culture change and values change over time and same in the same way that I've done in, in the latest uh, in the generations book um, and what you do see in that is you know genuine differences between generations coming through and, and the interplay with geography in the way that you're saying as well um, so there is something uh, uh, authentically bottom up about how these things happen and, and intertwined with uh, deteriorating outcomes for um, particular 
communities within uh, each of our countries. If you're comparing the US and the UK, um, uh, the Anne Case and Angus Deaton work on deaths of despair in the US paints a very vivid picture of um, that sense of decline among white um, working class, uh, lower educated uh, Americans and how that's led to a huge amount of resentment about a lost way of life and lost respect. And you can see um, echoes of that in the UK and in, you know, even in Michael Marmot's work on health inequalities in the UK, we're actually seeing life expectancies decline among more deprived uh, communities within the northeast of England, say, or and particularly among women. So they've got all of this reality of a lost way of life or a lost sense of uh, progress or future that then does uh, chime quite authentically when you see the top-down messages um, from other, it chimes with those types of audience when you see get those top-down messages. So it is, I'm afraid, uh, an interplay, I think, between those two things and and saying that one is, causal, one is uh, more causal or more dominant is really hard to do and probably not necessarily that useful or the right way to think about it in some ways because it is like all of these things they're, they're so often an interplay between the two and and the fact uh, that uh, they both exist doesn't devalue the importance of the other one uh, if you see what i mean so it's uh it is it is an interplay very difficult to say what came first or uh whether one's more real than the other they both seem to me to be pretty important and then a very much more recent impact is the pandemic. So do you think that it's possible to say whether the pandemic has had an impact? Yeah, again, I really could put I'm just finished a writing a feature for the new scientists on whether we have a a covid generation uh, and then more broadly what are what are going to be the long-term social and other impacts of of uh, the pandemic and I think the the um key theme that if you look across lots and lots of different areas about what impact has the COVID pandemic had on people, it is that it has accelerated and accentuated trends that were already underway rather than creating lots of new ones. Um, uh, it's more whatever path we were on, we're just being pushed down that path further and faster. So and I think it's a similar sort of thing Um with uh, the pandemic's impact on uh, how connected or disconnected we are and, and the sense of polarization or groups that people are in. Um, we, we're doing some you know, ongoing uh, grant-funded research around the extent to which COVID and uh, misinformation or disinformation online is a, a gateway into further conspiracy theories or more radicalization generally and you can definitely see that um that type of the exposure to those types of messages it doesn't just stop with covid and you can see how um it leads to other types of uh, engagement with communities that are more radicalized or more extreme in, in their views so yes i think um like most things with covid it's uh, it accelerating or accentuating things that we've already seen happening so in a minute, I think we're going to move on to talk about generations and, and perhaps some of the things in your new book. Um, but before we do, can we drill into culture wars a bit? And I think you probably have already answered this, but maybe it, it may even bear repeating. Do, do you have a kind of definition of what uh, culture wars is? What, what, how should we think about that? Because as I think a point you made at the beginning is it kind of gets banded around as a term um without really a lot of lot of substance to it so so do, do you have a good definition of a culture war yeah yeah that's again it is one of those terms that is just used uh, very casually and we did we did a piece part of this research was um looking at media coverage of the term culture wars um and what that showed was in 2015 there was only 21 UK newspaper articles that referred to culture wars as a thing in the UK. Um, there were more articles about how it was a thing in the US, uh, but only 21 here. But then by 2020, there were 534 UK newspaper articles that referenced culture wars in the UK. 
um, which is just incredible uh, increase in the use of this term. So part of the the reason for wanting to do this work was to look at some of the theory and understanding of um, culture wars from the US uh, because we hadn't we'd imported the language. Uh, but hadn't really imported the understanding of what it means or what it's supposed to be. And what it is, is not disagreement, not disagreement between two sides or between uh, people on different sorts of issues. That happens all the time in politics, and you kind of need that, and it's um, helpful. It is this sense that you have two utterly separate worldviews. Um, this is you know from the original Culture Wars book by James Davison Hunter, and lots of other people around the early 1990s in the US. It's that sense of two utterly uh, different worldviews that are irreconcilable, um, one to the other. Um, uh, so there's no room then for com- compromise. You think you've got the right worldview and the other side hasn't got the right worldview. And then since then, people have kind of developed it as an idea, um, including people like Liliana Mason, who was one of the first people to start talking about mega identities, that um, your political identity more and more gets rolled into your political identity. And you can tell more and more about a person just from knowing which party they support on unrelated things. Um, And then more recently, Ezra Klein, in his book on polarisation, talks about how each time those any aspect of those identities are activated, are kind of played on, played up, they strengthen um, and we get a a stronger sense of our side, um, that being on our side and against the other side. So you've got this kind of uh, very useful framework from the US of understanding what this really is. And and we're not at that point right now where we've got these uh, mega identities in politics that are just getting stronger and strengthened and you can predict everything. But we could go down that path and and talking about culture wars casually and um, not understanding really what we're talking about uh, is part of the part of the problem. You can talk yourself into this um, or follow down that path, and it's not something we really want to do. And have we, or have you been able to sort of characterise the different sides of the culture wars in the UK? I'm thinking of in particular in any in any more exact way because i think when we talk about it sort of you know down the pub or whatever we've got in mind the kind of london metropolitan types like perhaps myself and then people who live in towns or the country and all the stereotypes about each side kind of maybe flow from that is that is that roughly what we're talking about or is there some more precise way of understanding it yeah and there there are different models to it um and uh, that sense of metropolitan elite versus the rest so it's actually we we asked that in our cultural study uh, the extent to which people think different groups are divided how divided are different groups and we asked that just because it comes up so much in in the more casual conversations about metropolitan elite versus the ordinary working people and people do have a really strong sense of uh, the division between those two groups top of the list in terms of people's perception of who are the most divided groups is brexit identities um uh, but that metropolitan elite one comes up quite high i mean but the the actual way that that we looked at it was instead of having preconceptions about which groups um we should split people into we we did uh use a statistical technique to see what groups come out of the data across different sorts of uh questions and and we ended up with four groups um uh, in our uh, in our segmentation of the general public, and uh, at one end you've got progressives. Um, we're about a quarter of the uh, population. We call them progressives, which are you know more open to change, uh, more uh, more focused on equality across cultural issues, um, uh, all of those types of things. And you've got traditionalists at the other end, who are, as you'd expect, um, fairly. Uh, opposite in types of views on that, more focused on um, tradition and nostalgia, more proud of the empire. Those those types of uh, views. But then you then you've got two other groups. You've got a disengaged group, who's about one in five of the population. You really don't have much of a view on any of these sorts of cultural divides. And then the biggest group is actually um, uh, it, what we called a, a moderate 
group, um, which is about a third of the population. And they were much more dependent, their position on any cultural division questions were much more nuanced and dependent on the context. And it wasn't a particularly, it, it, it depended. So they didn't have the nostalgia for the past of um, the traditionalists, but they were worried about political correctness gone mad, for for example, or that people can't have to police their own speech and those types of things. And I think that's really important and really, yeah, important for podcasts like this in the sense of um, even that traditionalist and progressive view within those two quarters of the population, we only really hear about slithers of the extreme of that, people that are... Uh, you know, that you get get retweeted or have a particularly strong view that gets repeated in the media. Even those progressive and traditionalist groups, uh, there's a lot of much more nuanced and moderate view within those groups too. And then you have this big, the biggest single group, which are uh, more of a mix um, somewhere in the middle. Uh, so um, that's the reality of how we break down. And it just doesn't really match with what we see in the in the rhetoric, the the media, social media, political uh, rhetoric, which is always uh, the more extreme views facing off against each other. That's encouraging for us, and, and hopefully um, there's more listeners we can pick up uh, in that moderate group or any other group. Um, final question before we get on to generations was, um, so those are four really interesting categories. Do they interact in any way with the Brexit identities that we used to hear so much about maybe a year and a half ago um or you know one might think oh the the brexit side is traditionalist and the main side the progressive is 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 that roughly what we're seeing or is there anything more to that there is definitely a a skew both on labor and conservative say as the main parties in england at least um uh uh and on brexit identities in the ways that you would think but it's by it's not at all universal in in the uh it, that you're only on uh the traditional side if you're a brexiteer you're only on the progressive side if you're a remainer it's not it doesn't it's not like that um so there is a skew but it's not an absolute um dividing line between the two and it's it's interesting because we did a we've got a new piece of work coming out soon with ifs and the deaton review on in attitudes inequalities where we we look at whether people have a structural or individualist view of inequality, the extent to which they think it's uh, determined by, you know, individual effort or um, that it's you know, up to people to make their own way or whether they think the structural things that hold certain groups back. And it's a very similar point there is there isn't really a massively clear cut um, distinction between those groups that you would think um, one is conservative or Brexiteer and one is Labour or Remainer. It's much more nuanced than that again. So I don't, Again, it's another sort of slightly encouraging sign for us not having two massive monolithic blocks facing off against each other in the UK as yet. Much more nuanced and um, fragmented uh, than than you might think from, you know, uh, what you presume from how you see the debates played out um, in the media and social media. And, and the other obvious question is how the kind of party votes split across those kind of groups. I don't know whether that you have data for that. And I'm particularly interested in how, where that, that moderate sort of group, the, the biggest group that perhaps don't have strong views, I'm particularly interested in where they tend to go if, if any way in particular. Yeah, again, I mean, it's similar. It's a similar kind of story, more Labour um, than Conservative, but it's not by any means universal. Um, so there is... Uh, more nuance in that group than uh, more variability in that group than than you would think. Um, people don't fit into these easily. It, it, these political identities uh, don't sum them up in a mega identity type way. Okay, so let's move on to generational divides. Yeah. So, firstly, um, have we seen significant differences? Or do we see significant differences in attitudes across different generations? Yeah, we we do, and that's like a an inevitable feature of society and a healthy one. Um, there's um, a lot of great thinking on generational difference that you can kind of trace back to 
some of the big sociologists and philosophers of the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, people like Karl Mannheim and August Comte and, and others, where basically they are saying generations are, this generational thinking is how society changes and stays fresh, because once we get past a certain age, we, individuals don't tend to change that much. So you need this refreshment from new generations coming through. And there's a there's a Canadian demographer who, and uh, uh, researcher who, who talks about it as a kind of demographic metabolism where it keeps us fresh, having new generations come through. So it's natural and good to have um, generational divides. Uh, and it's inevitable as, as, as well because, you know, young people come into society and they're not configured to the views of their parents and they are going to change uh, things. Um, but the crucial point, I suppose, related to that culture war um, debate is that the gaps between young and old <clears throat> today are no different on these types of social issues, whether it's race, gender, uh, sexuality, um, etc. are no different. Those gaps between young and old are no different today than they were in the past in many ways. The issues change over time um, where we're less focused on homosexuality, acceptability of homosexuality. There's no, very little division on that uh, now, and it may move on to gender identity, um, or it uh, it may be more about empire now um, and uh, less about race to some degree. Um, so... The issues change, but the gaps between young and old are pretty constant in lots of ways. And in fact, we've seen bigger gaps in the past. So again, in, in the book, in the Generations book, what I'm trying to do is not claim everything is generational or these current generations are uh, particularly different. Uh, we haven't got a generation of snowflakes or social justice warriors coming through, particularly um, right now. But the real task is to try to separate what why change is happening into there's basically just three effects. There's those types of cohort effects, generational effects, where one generation is different and stays different from another. But there's also period effects where something changes in the context and it affects everyone and we all change um, to some degree. And then you also a third one you have is life cycle effects is where we do change as we age to some degree as we go through particularly important life stages, etc. So on this kind of culture wars debate, while it, it feels like we've got a particular division between young and old, I argue in the book and uh, think more generally that that's much more of a period effect than a cohort effect. This is not so much about a weird generation or a weird generational war or conflict uh, brewing up now because of that. It's much more to do with the change again in our information environment and how more extreme views are seen more readily than more moderate views. So uh, I, I, there are differences. We shouldn't be worried about differences. Uh, we are. I, we should be worried about this stereotyping and emphasis on cultural division uh, between generations right now because, we, again, we are talking up um, something that isn't particularly there. But that is due to this more period effect of uh, a more divisive, fractious politics, media and social media. So how true is the characterisation of the woke young and the culturally conservative old? I'm assuming from what you said that that characterisation doesn't hold. Yeah, it's not. It's it isn't you can't dismiss those types of generational differences that the young are more comfortable with change um younger generations coming through are always more comfortable with change and you get less comfortable as you get older uh, so there is some truth in that and you can go back you know um literally centuries or thousands of years and find quotes from socrates and then lots of others about how young people have uh, are going completely wrong and their morals have gone downhill and uh, you can't trust them and they are in fact there's loads of quotes that you could find from 17th 18th century that could have been written today about uh, young people um, being uh, snowflakes effectively or uh, super woke and 
um, in uh, in similar sorts of, of terms. So that is there is um, truth in that aspect of it. Uh, what where there is uh, no truth and loads of exaggeration is the, the there's something particularly different about that today in the nature and characteristics of young people and it's kind of seen across all sorts of issues and it's quite destructive it's destructive as a as a thing so you know less on cultural stuff but say on climate change um there's this terrible uh cliche stereotype that old people don't care about um climate change or social responsibility more generally among uh companies but actually when you look at the data there's very little gap between young and old on lots of climate concern questions. There are some, but most of them, it's a few percentage points here or there. And when you look at actual behaviour on things like boycotting products for social, socially responsible reasons, it's actually Gen X and baby boomers who are most likely to do that out of all of the generations. This is a, a behaviour that you grow into over time much more than it being a generational break. That kind of cancel culture in those terms, is much more of a middle-aged thing than a young person's thing. So uh, the, that caricaturing of a particularly woke young and a particularly culturally conservative old in our current times is is wrong. Um, and we should just get uh, used to the fact that there's always going to be these differences and we're emphasize, overemphasizing them um, because of the type of information and politics environment that we're in right now. So let's just um, talk a little bit about party politics and support for parties. Now, there is a noticeable age gap in support for the Conservative and the Labour parties and various different parties and ideologies more generally. So what explains that? Yeah, really good question. I was just looking at this for a presentation I'm doing tomorrow. It is, it's a... It's um, really noticeable, particularly for the Labour Party support, so Conservative Party support. When you track it all the way back to when we've got decent data, which was early 1980s, um, there's always been quite a generational divide in Conservative Party support, and it's widened, um, but it's not a a completely new thing. The interesting thing is that Labour Party support never had a age-based or generational-based divide until the last few years um where it's really exploded as you say it's like uh, you, tr- you track these generations over time and i do it through these these line charts where you're just watching them year after year with very very little gap uh, between the generations and then you get to 2015 16 through to uh now and suddenly you've got young people twice as likely to be a labor supporter as older people and in, in gaps you know we just haven't seen before and it is interesting about why that has happened. And I I probably would say this because I've been focusing so much on polarisation and, and culture. But I think there is an inevitability built into our shift in focus to more culturally, uh, more cultural concerns in our politics, whether that's immigration, uh, integration, speed of change, you know, um, social justice issues for particular groups that if if you make that the center point of our politics or a really important part of our politics then you know referring back to my points about how younger generations are always more uh comfortable or uh, in those segmentation terms progressive in in their views then you're building in this age-based division into your politics the more you focus on that the more you're going to be focusing, uh, you're, the more you're going to be splitting people on um, age basis. And I'm, I do worry about that. And it is something I cover a lot in the book because it, there is something particularly risky about dividing the electorate based on age. And it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic that, again, you see playing out in the US because what you tend to find is that one side thinks they have demography on their side Um but they've got a coalition of the ascendant of young and more diverse people. And that, and that makes them comfortable, but also makes probably drag, pushes them towards the more 
uh, leading edge of cultural change in terms of what they focus on, um, because that is their demographic. And then the other side, uh, naturally uh, worried about their potentially shrinking base, so they do everything they can to pull their base towards them. Um, and they do that by emphasising the extremeness of the other side. So that's a sort of taking campus politics national point um, that's been talked about in the US and increasingly relevant here. Um, so then you get into this uh, kind of uh, escalation of um, caricaturing of one side uh, and um, uh, by both sides, uh, caricaturing of the other side by both sides. So that's not a good dynamic because it just pushes you towards uh, more and more extremes and it, it kind of uh, settles in that um, uh, it gets quite difficult to shift once you get into that type of dynamic. So I think we do have that. We have a we have an issue with the age-based separation of our vote. Um, I have to say, you know, that this has emerged incredibly quickly in these sort of long-term political trends and it can change quickly as well in the future. That's one of the things from doing all this generation analysis over a long period of time is a lot of things that look set can change. Um, and particularly <clears throat> important to realise that we have agency to change them. We're not uh, absolutely predetermined on a generational path for lots of these things. So uh, it's not that saying that this is a set trend forever, um, but it is a risky one. And just finally from me, is it too early to say how the pandemic has affected this divide or the, the kind of divides or not divides that we've talked about. So there's obviously the, the direct impact of the pandemic and the yeah. differential sort of impact by generation, yeah. but also looking further ahead and how society is likely to change, how politics is likely to change, how um, some of the things that have come up, for example, social care and the age divides around that. So the pandemic specifically but also in a general sense the impact the knock-on effect is it uh, too early to say or is there any data or insights that you have on um how the pandemic has impacted that generational divide yeah so it's it is early to say i mean the thing that um when you go back to the literature on how generations formed one of the the, the key steps forward in our thinking about generations was, as I say, at the beginning of the 20, 20th century, and that was driven by the First World War and the uh, huge sacrifice of young people um, uh, in, that, in that war and how that led to a, a kind of generational awakening and identity. Um, I think the pandemic is different, um, clearly, from that type of... because it's affected everyone... Uh, but it's affected them in pretty different ways. And in some ways, I, I, the reason I focus in, on COVID in the book is in some ways you couldn't pick a type of global crisis that's more potentially generationally divisive than COVID, where you've got a disease where the risk of serious illness and death is you know, hugely skewed based on your age, pre-vaccination, um, but still uh, still a factor. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, where you've got measures to control the virus, which lots of data that has come out already has shown that young people have um, suffered more than older people. Everyone, you know, there's been a lot of suffering all round, but if you look at economic impacts or you look at mental health impacts and obviously educational impacts, um, it's younger generations who've had uh, borne the brunt of uh, some of the, the impacts of those control measures. Um, so it feels like a custom designed almost to test generational connection. Um, where you've got the disease pulling in one direction and the measures to control it pulling in the other direction. But that's not what we've seen during the pandemic. Again, if you ignore the stereotypes and cliches in some of the coverage of uh, young people flouting um, the rules. The actual picture has been of incredible compliance 
um, by young people, mainly to protect older and vulnerable um, populations. And that's that's a really important message from this, is that actually while generational differences are, are important and they are vitally important to understand in order to understand where we are now and what comes next, um, we do have these incredible connections up and down generations through our families, love for our families and a more general connection uh, between young and old. So I don't, there is no signs that the pandemic is, is particularly leading towards a sense of generational war or conflict, which is actually, you know, serious headlines in wall street journal and um, all sorts of other outlets at the beginning of the crisis. And, it, and it, it's really important to remember that, um, but, but it will have knock on effects and there is a long, very long-term knock-on effects. And there is a lot of good work from other types of crises that show that there's a type of scarring effect, economic and other um, types of scarring effects, that when you go through these types of things in your more formative years where you're trying to establish yourself, uh, that can knock you more than when you're already established. And, and it's, a, it's a particularly cruel um, timing of this for millennials and then Gen Z to follow who who bore the brunt, millennials bearing the brunt of the financial crisis at the start of their careers and then having this knock and then Gen Z coming into this type of knock. So we can't we can't know yet what the longer term implications of this will be, but we can we can uh, first of all reassure ourselves that it's not going to uh, particularly end in a generational. Uh, war or outright uh, conflict because uh, that that those connections have been tested as much as you could ever test uh, connections through this type of uh, crisis but we are going to see this knock-on effect of long-term scarring and I don't um, like I say I just finished this long piece for new scientists on generation COVID and and what can we what can we know about generation COVID and when you go through all of the different uh, aspects of it uh, there are some worrying worrying signs on mental health um, on education longer term education impact on longer term uh, economic impact and then you know very longer term things like what it's going to do to birth rates for us supporting an already aging population so there are uh, worrying signs that there will be long-term impacts that will be disproportionately felt by younger generations So to sort of finish up, I want to take us a step back. And um, I guess the million dollar question for political leaders is how to build coalitions across these different groups. Hmm. Um, and, and that might be to get votes and that, but that might also be to try and get enough consensus for, say, change toward net zero, or as we're seeing in the news, trying to get to a, a social care settlement after God knows how long we've been trying to have a, a funding solution, et cetera, et cetera. So um, could you, and how, how, how does one do that? How can a coalition be built between either generations or these different cultural groups? Is, is, it, is, it, is it possible? Is there anything one can do? Yeah, really good. I mean, like when we looked at the culture wars work, we had to look at all the books and reports that we could find on the US and here and other countries about what could we, um, what could we learn. And what, what you notice when you read those books is the conclusions or sort of recommendations bits of how do you avoid a culture war or, or how do you avoid generational divisions or those types of things are quite thin in terms of what how do you do this and it it's because it kind of goes to the heart of um really big big questions for us is that you know uh, one of the key drivers of this is we have lost a lot of faith that the future is going to be better for our kids uh, than it was for us and that's really powerful intergenerational um need for us and when that happens it's really tough for people um to see you know have to keep faith in uh the system and what people don't ask for is shuffling around from old to young older generations of um uh you know losing the triple lock 
or any other sorts of taxation, increased taxation on old people or decreased benefits on older people, not very popular with people. And the things that they come up with are really big picture things about making work pay better for people, better health services, better education, those types of things. Because it, it's much more generally a sense of um, can we get that sense of generation on generation progress um, going again. And it's a, it's a similar sort of thing in the culture wars and polarization literature it's kind of these are not uh quick fixes about bringing people together with communications and sound bites and things i, I think i'm not saying that that's not possible for a, a a really enigmatic leader and some good communications to do better on those types of things but but the types of stuff is is much more about how does the system work overall do people feel that they are um making progress and that their their children will make progress and then structural things like actually how do how we do democracy and the extent to which you know in the uk for example very centralized view and the need for more local and more devolved and more making decisions closer to people i think the one of the things that does come through strongly is that uh, the more removed these types of things are the more likely are to get these identities where there's little or no compromise between groups but actually when people are talking to other people either through deliberation citizen assemblies and that more devolved types of approach people are much more reasonable um, and can see other sides uh, of the argument uh, so those it's those types of things that are very big picture about actually getting a better future for people looking at how we do democracy and how we involve people but then quite a lot of the books also do just in the end make an appeal to the kind of virtue or character of leaders to not stir up these um, divisions and that's again it feels quite weak in the sense of what we've got going against it but it is important within that it's um the extent to which um we can actually get people, uh, pol political leaders and others, to think more about connection rather than division and think more about the long term instead of the short term. Uh, and, and you can see why you end up there, because it, it, without that, without that sense of greater uh, connection and uh, a longer term perspective on things, it is very difficult to see how you move the other stuff. Well Bobby, thank you very much. That's been a really, really interesting no deep worries. dive into some of the issues that we talk about a lot and cover a lot, but don't always explain and certainly don't cover in the kind of depth that we've done this time out. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to go through all of that with us. No, not at all. I hope it was what you were after. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. But Steve, thank you very much as always for joining us. Thanks, Martin. And thank you, Bobby. No worries at all. Thanks for the chance to talk it through. Good fun. Great. Great. And thank, thank you very much, Bobby. Yes. And thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>